Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hey everybody! Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Nick. Yes, hello everybody, it's Dr. Nick here again. Welcome to Radiotherapy Live, online and on podcast. And I'm joined in the studio, yay, today by the whole crew next to me. I've got Prudence dear. Good Prudence. morning. <laughs> so nice to see you in the it's studio. Lovely to be here. I was a bit worried we weren't going to be allowed in. Yes, well, dragging her out from night duty for the first time for a while. Misdiagnosis, good to see you. Good morning, Dr. Nick, nice to be back. And they've let you out? They, they have let me out. They actually let me out last night as well and uh, sort of got home a little bit late. So, little Do they put all you junior doctors on vitamin D supplements when you're on night duty just to keep you healthy? I mean, it sounds like a pretty good idea, Dr. <laughs> Nick, but not so far. <laughs> and behind the panel, we've got Panel Beater himself. And Panel Beater, thank you for looking after us this morning. But before I go on, I just want to mention our missing panellist, Rainbow Doc. Uh, Rainbow was a regular contributor on this show for several years, and alert listeners may remember her very moving tribute in March this year to recently departed psychologist Melissa Hart. Melissa was a trailblazer in the field of emotion-focused therapy and a mentor for Rainbow. So in Melissa's absence, Rainbow has stepped up into her very considerable shoes, meaning that she swapped the Sunday microphone for some seriously hard work. So, Rainbow, if you're listening, we'll miss your voice, your insightful commentary, and all the very best from everyone here at Triple R. Absolutely, Nick. Yes, we'll be very sad to see Rainbow go, always with a very considered opinion and well-informed. I think uh, they've they really added to our conversations, and um, yeah, it's been great having them on board. Sad to see them go. I'm not sure you can move on to anything higher than Triple R, but if it's possible, I think she's managed it. <laughs> so if COVID has brought anything to the forefront, it's been considerations around mental health. So in today's show, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the mood disorders. Uh, we'll be talking to Dr. Geordie Rockman, a Melbourne GP who specialises in mental health, and also with our panellists, Prudence Dear Misdiagnosis. Uh, I'm really looking forward to those conversations. But first today... Being world, today is in fact World Refugee Day. In a moment, we'll be talking to Jana Favero, and she's the Director of Campaigns and Advocacy at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. And she'll be coming up right after these messages. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. On the line, we have Jana Favero from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Good morning, Jana. Good morning. How are you? I'd better get it right first up. Are you Jana or Jana? I'm a Jana. Hard J. Thank you for checking. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wrong again. Um, Jana, thank you for your time this morning. Tell us about the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Most people will know about it. It's been going a long time, hasn't it? Yes, Asylum Seeker Resource Centre actually just turned 20, so we celebrated 20 years of operations. We are based in Footscray in Melbourne, and we offer services to about 7,000 people seeking asylum. And those services include everything from material aid, such as food and warm blankets and clothing. We have a medical clinic. We have a legal service. We also have an employment service, and then nationally we advocate for change, because the only reason we exist as an organisation is to fill all of those horrendous policy gaps that exist and make sure that people seeking asylum are treated fairly and equally as they're waiting to go through the process of settling oh, their claims. And, and what a fantastic service. 7,000 people, we've got health, we've mm. got welfare and so on. Um, are most of those people working for you volunteers? Uh, so at the ASRC, we have about 1,500 volunteers. 1,500? 1,500 volunteers. That, that outstrips um, all of our staff numbers. We have about 200 staff, and that includes our social enterprise staff. We have two social enterprises, ASRC Catering and ASRC Cleaning. So really, what ASRC is now, 20 years later, at the heart, is exactly what it was when we first started. It was to fill gaps, and it was powered by volunteers, and it was doing everything 
in the best interest and with people seeking asylum and refugees. And so that has continued while those policy gaps have increased and obviously our staff numbers and volunteers and services have increased. But the heart of what we do is the same thing as the reason the ASRC started 20 years ago. So that's an absolutely enormous organisation. Tell us about the funding. How, how do you get your money? Well, I can tell you first how we don't get our money. We <laughs> yes. don't accept any. We don't get any federal government funding. One of the main reasons is, is on principle that we do exist to fill all those policy gaps. So we think that it um, it wouldn't be right for us to take money from a federal government. We're also advocating for change. Also, by not taking any federal government funding, we're able to be truly independent. We are absolutely non-partisan. It means that our advocacy is based on what's best for people seeking asylum without any interference or political interest. I also doubt the federal government would want to give us any money, given um, how different their stance is to ours. So that really means that it is people power, it's the community that funds all of our work. We do get a small amount of money from state government, but it's a very small percentage of our overall fundraising income. So it's through appeals that we do, it's through Feast for Freedom fundraisers, it's through generosity of philanthropy of major donors. But at the end of the day, it is generous people in the community who chip in money here and there, either monthly or at events like a telephone we've got today, that really enable us to keep our doors open and support and work with over 7,000 people seeking asylum. So that's a very important point today is the ASRC Telethon. Um, I'm sure there are people out there opening their wallets and checking their credit cards as we speak. If people are keen to donate and support the ASRC, first up, I, I'm guessing that, assuming it's tax deductible. Yes, absolutely. All donations over $2 are tax deductible. People can call in on one three hundred six nine two seven seven two, or go to our website and donate online, um, all the w's.asrc.org.au. And as you call through, the call will be answered either by ASRC staff, by volunteers, or some of the amazing celebrities and well-known people who have got supporting us today. Ooh, who have you got supporting got you today? Who are the celebrities? Right. So, look, normally we would have a huge amount of people, but given the COVID restrictions, we have had to reduce the number of people. But if you go onto the website, you'll see everyone that's supporting. But in terms of answering the phones, if you call to the moment, Angela Pipoff and Geraldine Hakewell, two uh, media and TV personalities will answer the phone. A bit later today, we'll have Limo and Tom Ballard and also Kishwa from MasterChef. And then later this afternoon, we have Eddie Betts. I have to give him a particular plug as a Carlton supporter. Go Blues. Uh, Claire Bowditch and Lisa Mitchell. So as you call through, you may be lucky enough to speak to one of those celebrities um, or one of the amazing volunteers who are able to keep our doors open or staff as well. So, yeah, I'm not sure if you can hear, but I'm in the centre at the moment. The phones are ringing. In the background, we want to keep it coming and happening all throughout the day. So there's a triple benefit for ringing the telethon today. You may get to speak to a celebrity, you'll support the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, and with June the 30th coming up, you'll get a tax deduction. Absolutely. <laughs> you might even get to call through and speak to me. That could be an added bonus as well. I'll be on the phones too all day, so I'll be helping out. But, yeah, absolutely right. It's, um, it, it's a great time of year to, to make a donation because it is tax deductible. You also will get through and, and speak to someone at the end of the phone who will be maybe a celebrity or someone who helps work with refugees and people seeking asylum. And most importantly, every dollar of what you spend goes straight to, to the organisation and enables us to do all we can. It also means that you'll be part of this amazing home of hope at ASRC and, and a force for change as well in advocating for people seeking asylum and refugees. You just heard Jana say that it's a great time to support the ASRC. I'm not sure there's ever a bad time to support the ASRC. I'd say all year round is a great time to support. But today uh, is the ARC, uh, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre telethon. That number again is 1300 692 772. So get on the phone, get your wallets out, get your credit cards bent and flexed and warmed up. Uh, call them up. You might even get to speak to Jana herself. You uh, might. And also, I'll just give one final plug is that certain times during the day we have an hour of power where your donations are doubled and now is one of those hour of power. So if people call through before 11am, not only do they get all those other benefits we've talked about, but their money will be doubled by some generous donors. So um, get on the phone line now or get out your credit card right now if you can before 11am.
that is an incredible extra benefit. We've got four reasons to ring the telethon yeah. uh, to double the benefit, but that is a superb concept. And uh, well, thank you to whoever those incredibly generous donors are who have said that they will double people's contributions. Contributions, Jana, thank you very much. We'll let you get to staffing the phones, and uh, all very best of luck. How much are you hoping to raise today? Well, we're hoping to raise $1.5 million today, um, which would uh, enable us to really continue to be a force for change and a home for hope uh, for people seeking asylum and refugees. Triple uh, R listeners, you heard that. Um, dip into the pockets. Thank you very much, Jana. Thank you to the ASRC for all the incredible work that you do, and best of luck with the rest of the telephone. Thank you. Thanks, Jana. That was Jana, Jana Ferreira from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Um, you heard that, people. I mean, they are an incredible bunch of people. Oh, totally, Dr Nick. I mean, I've worked with a number of, uh, you know, asylum seekers and the services that they've been able to get and the support they get is absolutely vital to their, to their survival and their sanity, I think. It's so important. So please, yes, support them in any way you can. It's quite a thought, isn't it? 7,000 people that they're supporting. And without the ASRC, where would those people be? Um, well done. We'll give that number one more time for the ASRC Telethon 1300 692 772. I'll be on the phone as soon as I'm off air. Oh, that'll be after the 11 o'clock. Damn it, I'll have to find another time. I was when... just thinking that, Dr Nick. Should we pop out of the studio and make a donation? <laughs> we'll find the other time when they double up. Um, We'll be back in a minute. We're going to be talking to Dr. Jordana Rockman. And Jordi is a Melbourne-based GP with a special interest in mental health. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what it's like on the front line in the community dealing with that kind of issue. We'll be talking to her right after this. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. On the line, we have Dr Jordana Rockman. Good morning, Jordana. Hi, Dr Nick. How nice um, to hear your voice. Is it Jordana or Jordi? Um, Jordi's fine. Jordi. Okay, Sunday morning informality. <laughs> so, tell us, so you're a GP, but you also have some um, special training in mental health disorders. Can you tell us what that actually means? Okay, that's right. I'm a Melbourne GP, and I've done some extra training in something called psychological skills, and this essentially allows me to provide longer counselling sessions for my patients, um, as well as give giving me extra skills to deal with mental health conditions. And what does what does extra training in this context mean? Is this a sort of weekend course done online and bingo, suddenly you're qualified? Does it take you five years? What, what are we actually talking about? No, it's, it's over a number of months and it's got some online and also um, video training and it's sort of skills in CP, CBT, um, interpersonal therapy and also in the training, going through case studies and um, just yeah, helping us be better equipped to know treatment options that we can give to patients. And for a lot of people, of course, will be familiar with CBT, but for those who don't know the acronym? Uh, cognitive Behavioural Therapy. Yeah, thank you. And um, it, so what does this actually mean in real life? What, what does it change for you as a GP? I imagine, like myself as a GP, we all see people with mood disorders and mental health issues. Uh, what, what difference does it make having done this specific training? Well, I think two things. I, one, as I said, I've got the, if I, if I find a patient that I think um, would benefit from some counselling and they can't get into it, see a psychologist or... Um, they feel more comfortable speaking to me, which some people are reluctant to go and speak to someone outside their GP. I can allocate some sessions to try and, you know, and to go through some techniques with them to provide some counselling to them. And I think the training also just with general consults gives just extra, I, I guess, help in sort of using these things to inform patients, to sort of direct patients. 
that makes sense. Yes, it certainly does. Prudence has got a question for you. Hi, Geordie. Yes, lovely talking to you. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, it sounds great that you've, you know, you've been developing these skills. I'm wondering from the perspective of, like, your time, you know, your time pressured like the, the probably the rest of us, are you yeah. able to offer, like, uh, longer sessions or are, we, are you fitting this into a 15-minute a uh, consult in your normal day? What, what, do the, what do the patients get, I guess, from that? It varies. If I'm um, seeing a patient, like specifically for counselling, I can allocate more time and I can charge different item numbers to allow for that. Um, so it does give me that um, flexibility. I guess the reality is with a lot of the mental health consults that I do see, you know, we are time poor and we are often trying yeah. to fit something in 15 minutes that really can't fit into 15 minutes. So... Yes, long, like after the initial presentation, I can try and tailor it. But often, as most GPs would find, the initial presentation, you know, you don't always know that it's going to be a mental health consult. Mm. Yeah. No, that, that's right. But they, you, people can make an appointment and come back and see you and probably, what, go, what, maybe half an hour or 45 minutes? Would that be the yeah, sort of thing that they could four, do? At, at least 40 minutes. Okay, um, that's good. Which that's right. is, is really needed when you're sort of looking at these conditions. That, Geordie, we're talking about the sort of conditions that are commonly dealt with by highly trained professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists, mental health social workers and so on. Um, do we have any data to say whether treating these things in general practice by people with your kind of training is actually as effective? Or um, here's a teaser question, are we giving them a second-rate service? <laughs> Um, yes, I just think as GPs, we're in an incredible position to address these conditions. While I don't have statistics, um, I think where we come from, we've got the advantage of knowing our patients, understanding some of the factors that may be impacting them, and even if we're lucky enough, knowing their family and you know their history. And so I think we can access a lot of treatment options, and whether this is lifestyle management, counselling, or in some cases, medications, I think... While I don't have the data, I think from my experience and then I guess my feedback from patients is that often we can provide really good service. Misdiagnosis. And you were saying before sometimes that um, you can offer this service while people are either looking for a psychologist or another form of sort of psychological help. Are you yeah. finding that it's more difficult for people these days to access psychological services just due to the demand on the system? Um, difficult and particularly... But um, we're just seeing so many more mental health presentations and um, it, it's really hard sometimes to find psychologist or, a, you know, a, a someone with availability. A psychologist I knew after last year retired. Oh, Jordi, I'm sorry, dude. I'm sorry. A lot of what you're saying is getting broken up at the moment, so uh, we'll need to get you to move somewhere else or stand up on a chair and wave your phone in the air to get a better reception or something. Because you just, you were just talking about how difficult it is these days to get um, people uh, like psychologists and so on involved. Um, do we know what the data are around mental health consultations and problems in, in terms of mood disorders in Australia at the moment? How bad is the problem that we're facing? Um, currently, I, I I don't have the data. I know that 30, um, that's sort of the most common condition that presents to general practice is um, depression and one in seven are experiencing, experience depression, one in four Australians anxiety. So um, That's at some point I, in their lifetimes. Yeah, and I can just go by sort of my experience and my colleagues' experience just, you know, in terms of what we're seeing and certainly I don't think we've ever seen so many people presenting with mental health. Um, issues, understandably, you know, I think given where we're at at the moment. Yeah, Geordie, with um, that sort of prevalence of depression, are you yeah. seeing, um, you know, is, is it a lot of people with mild depression or are you seeing an increasing number of presentations of, of like, you know, severe types of depression, do you think? Um, it varies. And I think, you know, after last year we saw... Um, people that had previously had um, depression or anxiety having recurrences and also people that hadn't had symptoms before presenting. I think 
the thing that we are seeing um, more than anything is, you know, I'd say is adolescents presenting with mental health issues and, you know, other mental health issues apart from depression, anxiety, such as eating disorders, which I think has been, you know, publicised recently. So um, certainly I think from the whole spectrum of presentations and I think, again, getting help. There is help, definitely, but it can be really tricky because the services often do feel overloaded. And talking help, I mean, the easy thing, of course, is to leap for the prescription pad, and I know yeah. that you wouldn't rule out medications. But if we if we sidestep medications for the moment and focus on the kind of psychological treatments that you're involved in giving, what are, what are the yeah. most important things that you talk to your patients about that they find helpful? Well, um, I like to use a bit of an acronym. acronym well, we like a good thing. acronym on Triple R. What's yours? <laughs> Your best self. It's a bit cheesy, but, you know, when I look at sort of things that might be in, impacting a mental person's mental health, I look at, B, are they breathing? Are they doing something to sort of have a bit of mindfulness or relaxation in their life? Are they eating okay? Are they exercising and S, are they sleeping? How much substances are they using? And I guess T is the talking or sort of getting a feeling of being together or connecting with people. And I think all these components, you know, contribute to a person's mental health. So in terms of looking at therapies, I'm pretty big at looking at, you know, um, introducing a person to meditation or yoga and um, doing, you know, giving them stuff that they can do themselves too, as well as the actual therapy or talking to someone. Um, I find actually that sometimes even the consult itself, when someone comes to see a GP, can be really therapeutic because often people have been experiencing a lot of issues, haven't talked to anyone about it, and just that sort of relief when they come and sort of articulate it in itself can be, you know, one of, like, yeah, very valuable. I, I think people forget that just how incredibly helpful it is just talking about things and so, so many patients yes. say, well, what good, what good can it do just talking <laughs> about stuff? Well, well, it's incredibly valuable. And not only that, but I think it is that um, one of the significant factors for how effective any of those sorts of therapies are is like the, the willingness of the, of the patient to change. So the fact yes. that they have come to you and said, I've got a problem, um, yes. is actually probably one of the single most therapeutic beneficial steps that they can actually take for themselves is to acknowledge that they could they need some help and have a have a help-seeking behavior and I hope hopefully you're seeing that totally and often people you know come back for a follow-up appointment and, and you know before you've even done anything else they'll say God, I feel a lot better and and really do notice that happens quite a lot so I'm very interested in your acronym. What does the F at the end of your best self stand for? Is that when you get right to the end, I'll forget it. <laughs> no, it's just best. It's best is the acronym and, you know, it's your best self. Ah, so I got you. Okay. <laughs> so, so it's the best the, the self does. Um, I know that you're also interested in using external resources um, and things that people can find on um, podcasts and the internet yeah. and that sort of thing. Can you just, uh, for our listeners who are interested in this area, maybe want to explore some of that what do you find uh, the most helpful that people can find for themselves well i think it's a, like the resources that are available to us at the moment are incredible and i think you know these can range from websites such as beyond blue or um, the black dog institute um, as well as various like e um like there's a lot of online um courses like mood gym where patients can do therapies online, and some, for some people that in itself is very helpful. I like to um, recommend a lot of meditation apps because I think that can really help people. Can you give some an example of a meditation app that you find so people particularly like? In, Insight Timer is a very good app. Which, Insight um, Timer, yeah. And it has a whole range of different types of meditation. I think meditation is a very underutilised tool, and I think... You know, it, it just there's so many different ways people can access it, and I think that's a really good app because it's free and it just has a whole range of different things that people can try. And often people have tried something, haven't liked it, never gone back, and it's just something 
they just haven't found the right thing for them. For some people, breathing might work. For others, a guided meditation. And for others, just a mantra or um, having something to anchor themselves while they're sitting can be useful. So I, I like insights. I'm a... I like smiling minds um, and one giant mind as well. So smiling minds, one giant mind, other options. For, for the listeners who are um, maybe meditation sceptics, <laughs> which was me, <laughs> um, but I, I did a guided meditation many, many years ago and I could not believe how effective it was. So um, for those that haven't ever tried them, maybe check into a couple of those apps and see whether it's for you. Misdiagnosis. I, I also have a recommendation for for a sleep one, I mean, last year in sort of the midst of COVID, I found myself getting sort of very anxious at night and um, for the first time ever had a lot of problems with sleeping, which was not something I'd experienced before um, and spoke to some people about, you know, sort of the best way to, to handle some of these things. And I was recommended a podcast um, by Michael Seeley and he does a sleep meditation podcast. And I tried other types of sleep meditation podcasts and none of them had worked. And there was something about his voice and something about the way that he sort of spoke that I found incredibly helpful. And it sort of fixed it for me, which was really good. So, Jordi, so just to finish, uh, as a GP yourself, as someone interested in mental health, what do you do to keep your own mental health going? What do you, what's most effective for you personally? Um, I love running. I think my, my, my biggest passion would be running, and I think that keeps me sane and kept me very sane last year but I also learned a few years ago that it's also important to sit as well so I do have a regular meditation uh, program in my life as well. So Geordie we will release you to go for a run and then to have a nice quiet (laughs) sit somewhere. Thank you very much for your time it's lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jordy. That was Dr. Jordana Rockman, a Melbourne GP. And, wow, listening to how the GPs can do this stuff, as well as seeing growing toenails and hypertension, it's just extraordinary. <laughs> that was fascinating. Um, after the break, we'll be talking further about mood disorders, this time with prudence steer and misdiagnosis. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We've been taking a bit of a deep dive into mood disorders, so we're going to carry swimming in the deep end. Uh, Prudence, let's let's talk a little bit more. We were talking to the Geordie Rockman GP just earlier about how she helps manage this work in general practice, but let's go back, step back a little bit and just define a bit. What are we actually talking about here? Well, that's right. Mood disorders, I suppose they kind of partly describe themselves. And for, for many people, that is going to take the form of some type of depression, some dysthymic sort of state. In other words, feeling, feeling down, feeling de-energised. Um, and I think it's probably important as well to, to perhaps understand that, you know, that there are various sort of diagnostic criteria that apply to these. But importantly, we do kind of divide them up, especially into things like major depression. Um, and that is, that is quite a severe condition that is, can be extremely debilitating where people can perhaps find it difficult to function and on so, a day-to-day so, basis. So, sorry to cut across you, but let's, yeah. uh, let's nail this one down at least a bit more. How do you differentiate between having a bad day or a well, tearful day or, uh, and, and, and a formal mood disorder? Right. Well, look, I mean, there are sorts of scales of like tests. We can ask people questions about it. But usually, I mean, I think the key things are is the severity of the, the, the feeling and also how long it lasts. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, we, I think we do, and we need to accept that, you know, a low mood is actually quite natural at different times um, for all sorts of reasons. But where it's, where it's sustained, where it goes on day after day, where somebody can't get out of bed, where they can't perhaps get to work, or they feel extremely distressed um, continuously and for long periods of time, I think that's, that would be a very important set of criteria. I should point out, you know, I don't actually do the diagnosis. I leave a lot of that to, the, uh, to other professionals, but that's what I often kind Kind of see, and I think there is a, a differential between, as I say, yeah, you know, feeling down for a bit. Um, I guess the other side of it as well is that 
It's about perhaps whether there's some reasons for things. So sometimes things happen to us. You know, we, we suffer some form of loss or something bad happens to us in our lives. And that, that will bring us down into a low mood state. We work through some of those things and maybe we start to feel better. Other people, it doesn't seem to matter what they do. They feel depressed and their depression may last and maybe cycle for weeks uh, at a time. And it's an important differentiation, isn't it? For instance, grief, uh, bereavement. Uh, yeah. It's obviously a time when we're meant to feel sad. We're meant to feel that life has changed utterly. Um, yep. And uh, there may be many of the symptoms that mimic true major depressive dis- mm-hmm. disorder, but maybe use that as an example. What would be the difference between, if you like, healthy grief or bereavement and major depression? Right. So again, I guess the, the major depression would be something that's really quite intractable. Um, you just uh, and there's no real perhaps reason for it. Um, we suffer in in grief. We we've lost something, and our world kind of view perhaps is being sort of shattered. It's changed in an irreversible way. Grief is extremely painful for many people, um, and it takes time to adjust to it. And we. We have perhaps the benefit of certain types of rituals and processes. We, we can talk about it very often. Um, you know, we've, we find people will support us, our family will support us. We can share grief. Um, a, a, a major depressive episode is a very individual experience that many people around you won't understand and they may think oh you're on a bit of a downer Um, they may be quite unsympathetic you're lazy why don't you get out of bed you've got a job to do you've got a family to look after and I think one of the other (laughs) huge differences isn't it is that with um, with healthy grief there, there isn't that sense of worthlessness for the person who's experiencing it. I mean, one of the hallmarks for a lot of major depression yeah. is that feeling of guilt, worthlessness, uh, hopelessness sometimes. Uh, yeah. and, the, and the other That's one right. that, uh, particularly in primary care, we, we think about a lot is the loss of fun, the technical term, anhedonia. Mm. Um, but when people are getting very little pleasure out of life, and again, with healthy grief, mostly people are still able to enjoy some aspects of life, um, but they, um, they're still uh, suffering the sadness of the loss of the person, which is a bit Absolutely. different, isn't it? Yeah, look, and I mean, we do have models of grief that suggest that, you know, we do move between two sorts of states, one of the sense of deep loss, but then also some sort of sense of meaningfulness, and we actually, our, our mood can be quite elevated. So that's normal to go up and down. Yes, for, for people with a, a severe depression, uh, yeah, that they can't laugh at anything. They find nothing enjoyable at all in life. And that, that in itself can be uh, even more challenging because they may even question the value of living. And that is where we obviously get very concerned about people and their their health. Yeah. And, and funnily enough, turning it around the other way with that, I remember a, a very depressed patient when he started to feel better. He said he was sitting outside the MCG with his son waiting for the game to begin and he realised he was really looking forward to it. And that feeling, he said, is something I hadn't felt for six months. <laughs> so the return of eager anticipation enjoyment is also perhaps a hallmark of improvement. I just want to, because we're talking about some fairly um, confronting stuff for some people, just in case this is uh, bringing up uncomfortable issues for people, people uh, need a bit of help and support, don't forget that uh, you can always contact Beyond Blue uh, and Lifeline is always there on 131114. So just a reminder to reach out if this is bringing up issues for you. But let's let's go back, Prudence. Well, reaching out. Reaching out is important. I mean, if you can do it, and that can be the difficult thing for some people with mood disorders, but what we do know, and, and Geordie was kind of emphasising that, how important it is to actually have someone to talk to. Um, I think, you know, we do feel those disconnections sometimes. And, okay, I'm a psychotherapist, so people come to me to talk about things. And I think, you know... There are different approaches, techniques or modalities. So as, uh, as Geordie mentioned, you know, cognitive behavioural therapy. I'm a, 
I'm a, a, a person-centered psychotherapist, but you know we kind of give all sorts of interesting names to these things. But what we do know, interestingly, is it doesn't actually matter very much what the modality, what the technique is that the therapist whoa, 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 uses. Whoa, 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 whoa! You say it, it can be trained in interpersonal therapy or narrative therapy and CBT, and it doesn't matter two hoots. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Which method you use in terms of the effectiveness? It's effective therapy, and in, and it's what it appears to matter more. Actually, is like I and I mentioned earlier. First of all, the willingness of the client or the patient to change. In other words, they're actually they have a help-seeking behaviour. They they are actually looking to make a change in their lives. So that's that's very important. And the second, really, the really important thing is the relationship that they form. That they they have someone who they can sit down with who they can form some kind of bond and attachment and actually perhaps, you know, trust and feel trusted. So can I ask you about what this attachment has been like doing things over telehealth? Because, of course, over the last sort of two years or so, everything has changed from face-to-face consultations and the therapy of, of physically going somewhere and allowing yourself that time mm. to, oh, God, it's you know 10 to 5 and I've got my appointment and I now need to quickly rush to my bedroom and make sure my computer's plugged in. How have you found that transition? Um, yeah, look, this is interesting, and I'm sure there will be a few PhD theses on this coming out in the next <laughs> couple of years. Um, look, I have actually found it, it, it really works. Most of my clients have been happy to switch over to, to doing it on the internet, to doing this sort of stuff like that way. Um, I've had one or two clients who've said, no, I'll wait until all this COVID thing's over, and then I'll come <laughs> back to face-to-face. And that's, that's probably been tricky for some mm-hmm. of them. Um, I mean, it does make it so much more accessible. Um, I can work at a broader range of hours. People can get to me. They don't have to travel to the northern suburbs of Melbourne to come actually and see me if they live in the south. And importantly, for people in regional centres or regional areas where, you know, I've had clients come to see me in North Melbourne who've had to travel all day to get in and actually have to find somewhere to stay overnight because they can't get... You can't get from Mildura to here and back again in one day. And um, to me, it's a really powerful indicator of the resilience of the human spirit and our adaptability. And to me, it's a very um, optimistic um, indicator for mental health because we thought prior to COVID that doing telehealth for psychotherapy was a very impoverished form Mm. of doing it. Not everybody, but it was something which many therapists said, I would never do that. Uh, And now it's been found by many, many people that it works extremely well. It may not be as good, but it's a pretty good substitute and it's a hell of a sight better than none at all. Absolutely. And I think, you know, yes, there are different ways of working and, you know, some therapists really do want to be able to observe their their client and see their body language and so on. And there is something extra, I'm sure, in just sitting close to another human being and being able to sort of see both of you being able to see the the sort of emotional responses that you know actually develop during that kind of during that conversation during that sharing of of that feeling so there's you know it it would it's far more effective to do face to face but i think that we've proven absolutely that that remote work is effective. I'm, I'm still slightly reeling from the concept that it doesn't matter what you were trained in, it makes no difference <laughs> at all. It's all about the relationship. I want to come back and yeah. talk some more about this and misdiagnosis. I want to hear um, from your perspective a bit as a junior doctor a little bit more about what's happening in this whole field of mood disorder. So we'll be coming back to that right after these messages. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Misdiagnosis. Um, you've, you've been on the front line in the emergency departments. You've been stitching limbs back on and mending broken bones but mental health must still be at the forefront of what you deal with too. There's a lot of broken hearts in the emergency department as well Dr Uh, Nick. And how many of those have you managed to solve? I think probably none if I'm totally (laughs) honest Um, but no it's, it's it's a very interesting 
time as well looking at some of this mental health stuff around what's happening with COVID. And, I mean, one of the things that I found doing some research for this segment was sort of not a lot of super contemporary data about what's happening to mental health, especially in young doctors and young people over the last year and a half. It's, it's almost like we are all so exhausted that we can barely get together to do the research to find the figures to show that we're all so mm. exhausted. Mm. Um, but I was – we've had um, Crazy Socks for Docs recently uh, mm -hmm. in 1st of June this year, which is our sort of mental health campaign for doctors. Uh, it was uh, started by a, a doctor who he himself was suffering from anxiety and depression, found it very difficult to talk to his colleagues about and ended up having an abnormal finding on an MRI scan of his brain, which he felt gave him legitimacy to be um, not okay. And he realised that there was a huge amount of stigma. Why did he need to have an abnormal finding on an MRI as opposed to being able to say, I'm not coping, I'm, I'm not okay? And started this campaign of wearing odd socks and wearing sort of fun socks to reduce the stigma and start the conversations around mental health in medical people. Um, and which, which is a really interesting idea, and there's a sceptical bit of me who thinks, well, it's all very well, you wear some bright-coloured socks on one day of the year, and somehow we fixed mental health. I mean, I know it's not as banal as that, but really, if how does this contribute? What, what good does it do to sort of wave around some coloured socks on one day of the year? No, I'm, I'm with you, Dr Nick. Sometimes it does feel incredibly banal, and when I turned up for work, um, on that day and I was working night shift and there were some cookies in, the, you know, little sort of plastic individually wrapped things, COVID safe, left on a desk somewhere and I arrived at 8.30pm and worked until 8am 8, 8 the next morning and that was it. That was my crazy socks for Doc's day, just a, a sort of a cookie left in a bowl somewhere. And it to me it felt very tokenistic. It felt like a tick box. It didn't feel like it was addressing anything significant. Now, that being said, I did sleep through all the seminars that they held during the daytime because I was on night shift. So I didn't benefit from those those conversations and maybe that discussion that was happening during the, you know, sort of the, the normal working hours. But I think sometimes this stuff can feel very tokenistic. And certainly for me, um, I ended up posting something to, one, to my social media account about how Rather than uh, crazy socks, what we'd really like is a lunch break. Um, <laughs> and that would be enough, I think, for most junior doctors to be able to physically sit down and have lunch for more than two and a half seconds and not eat on the run. And that whilst it's all very well to wear fun so socks, while none of us are eating or drinking, it, it sort of means very little. <laughs> so what you're saying is that uh, one of the best things for your mental health would be to increase the resources, take some of the pressure off and make it less stressful. Absolutely. And when I actually looked at the campaign that, and it's got a, a very apt name, it's Dr. Too Good who started the Crazy Socks for Docs uh, campaign. Um, and when I was, and that's, that's actually that's his, his name? That's his name. <laughs> I know. You see, it was think destiny. It was exactly. Um, what what he has tried to do with this is that the, the socks and that kind of thing is, is just the, the visual sort of front yeah. of it. There's a lot going on behind the scenes that isn't tokenistic, that is really genuinely trying to change things. And um, what Dr. Tugud talks about is it's about building resilience, not in the individual, but within the community itself. So the resilience of the organisation to allow for people to not be okay, to take time off if they need to, to have time and space to physically have lunch, that kind of thing, is where the campaign is um, sort of trying to go. Now, at, at sort of midnight when you're at work and running around and haven't eaten and that kind of thing, doesn't really feel like that. But th there are good intentions behind it. Yes, but, but building resilience requires some sort of resource, doesn't it? Because it's all very well, it's, it's a bit like, are you okay, Day? If you say to someone, are you okay? And they say, fine, yeah, I'm fine. Uh, but if they say, no, I'm not what happens next? Prudence, you'll be the kind of person someone, you might ask someone, are you okay? And they yeah. said, no, I'm not. I mean, what should people do with this? If we're, if we're going to raise awareness of mental health, we have to be able to do, do something with the answers. Absolutely. And that, that is one of the things that worries me sometimes is that, you know, the, the corporate sort of schemes of, you know, encouraging people to ask others. And I mean, it's important that we do care for each other and that we show that we are aware that people are it's okay to be stressed it's like the stigma thing it's like oh I'm at work and I'm you know working back late um, and I'm doing that because I have to because I can't get my job done and I don't want people to think that I'm not good enough um, yeah it's it's a difficult conversation and I think it works 
for pe- when people have the, what well, I suppose, yes, again, that degree of empathy and can provide a sort of sympathetic ear and can listen to someone else. But not everybody's kind of perhaps equipped to do that. And you do open potentially, you know, that Pandora's box. You ask somebody how they are and they tell you that they're absolutely terrible and something most awful's just happened to them. And you don't know what to do. So, okay, you're the psychotherapist. People are listening. They want to know the answer. What do I do? Come, do, come on, do, well, do. What, what would be a more helpful kind of response? I mean, presumably, it's not just, oh, pull up your crazy socks and get on with the day. Yeah. You'll be fine. Well, what is the best? I guess sit down with them. Just say, oh, that's terrible. That's really awful. Would you like a cup of tea? Let's go. Let's go somewhere. Maybe take them out of the office or out of the environment they're in and just give them some space and just be with them. It's perhaps all you have to do. You don't actually have to like you're not you're not a doctor, you're not a therapist, but actually just being physically and sort of psychologically present with somebody can make a big difference to how they feel. Then maybe it's a case of, well, we need to find you some help and whether it's a helpline or go and see your doctor or something. Something else? Yep. And, and I think this is the issue in the in the medical workplace at the moment is that no one has the time to you know look after themselves, let alone look after other people. And there was a, an incident at, at my workplace a little while ago, and and something happened to a colleague of mine, and she was very distressed. And she went and sat down somewhere to write some notes, and someone said, "Are you okay?" And she said, "Well, no, no, I'm not okay." And they said, "Okay." And that was the end of the conversation. That was the end of the conversation because there was a lot of other stuff going on. There, there was sort of significant sort of casualties and things coming through the department at the time that needed imminent medical attention. And there were five people in the entire building who were able to do that. And they, they didn't physically have the time to get themselves a cup of, cup of tea, let alone my friend who was there as well. And I think, you know, one of the things with this trying to build a more resilient workplace is trying to, you know, we're just staffing it better so that there might be a little bit of slack in the system that someone can say, let's go get a cup of tea and let's go and talk about this. And, and I, I do want to reinforce for listeners who, who may be thinking, I, I would really struggle if someone said to me, no, I'm not okay. Um, one of the things that I think is so important is, uh, particularly we men, we tend to get stuck with, oh my God, I've got to do something about it. I've got to try and help or fix it in some form, which is possibly the least helpful thing that you can do in that circumstance. Uh, and I think it's very helpful for listeners who maybe aren't aware of this, that the most helpful thing you can do is not try to be helpful in the sense of suggesting answers or give bland reassurance. It is exactly what Prudence was saying. It's just empathic listening, giving someone some time and space. um, And that itself is probably much more helpful than anything else that you can actively suggest. First aid. Yeah. It's the ideal piece of first aid, yeah. Yeah. Um, So misdiagnosis, sorry, yes. Uh, I was, so, I mean, the the Labor government has has committed a lot of extra funding towards mental health. And I wanted to ask both of you, Prudence and, and Dr. Nick, one of the things that they, that we've um, that's happened in, is that they've increased the number of Medicare rebate sessions for mental health consultations. Now, do you think that this is an effective thing? Do you think that this is helping much at all? Do you think the money should be going elsewhere? Well, I've got a few opinions on that. Um, look, I mean, we, people need services. We do need, um, you know, to get access to therapists. So this this is important, absolutely. And and people very often do need more than the ten sessions a year that they're currently getting. Um, but I think there's another side to this, and that is that, as as actually Geordie pointed out, getting access to therapists in the first place is the difficult thing. So increasing your number of sessions from 10 to 20 doesn't give more people more access. I think that's important to bear in mind. And as I am something of a firm believer that, you know, getting to a therapist, we know that the number, the average number of sessions that people go to therapists for is one. So more often than not, people will go to see a therapist and there's good evidence to show that one session with a therapist, 60% of people go away feeling better. And it's like, again, we were talking earlier that, you know, just going to see someone and say, I think I've got a problem, I've been feeling down or something else, they actually feel better. They get it kind of off their chest. I think it's a bit more complex than that. So it's about actually creating an environment where there are more appointments available. Mm. There, there are more service providers available, I think. And that's, that's something we really need to look at in terms of, um, you know, 
there are they, they, the Medicare system, for example, doesn't fund counsellors. There are thousands of counsellors around who are really only accessible, um, you know, for fee payers. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important that we find better ways of, you know, tapping into that. Mm-hmm. And I think the original restrictions on Medicare, of course, there's a financial element, but I think the evidence base, in inverted commas, for it was uh, really based around some of these so-called manualised treatments like cognitive behaviour therapies where there was some science that showed that a half dozen or so sessions were mostly effective for most people. And so, bingo, there you go. That's why we then limit it to that number. And, of course, what Prudence was saying earlier as well, the work that's done and the effectiveness of the work is not dependent on whether you're using a specific manualised therapy. And many people will benefit from a single or a couple of sessions, but many people will need many more than that. Um, It's like all government-funded instruments, there has to be a line drawn somewhere, I guess. It can't be open-ended. Me, personally, I'm a huge fan of the extra sessions. I think there are an awful lot of people uh, who get an enormous benefit from longer-term psychotherapy that ultimately is very, very cost-effective. Misdiagnosis, uh, we've, of course, um, talked about the stress in the medical professions, Mm -hmm. but I think one of your points is it's not isolated to just doctors, is it? At the moment, this is an issue across the board, isn't it? Absolutely, and I I think we we are at risk of becoming um, sort of siloed in our distress as well, that we, as junior doctors, feel like, you know, we have it the toughest, and then you talk to creatives and they say, well, we've got it really tough at the moment because we've got no income revenue and we can't do what we love, and you talk to young lawyers and they say we're working ridiculous hours and we're working from home and I think the reality is it is it's a very tough time across the board and instead of siloing ourselves into our specific distress that belongs to us and is worth x mound we should look at the fact that you know majority of young people at the moment are struggling with change in the workplace with change in their relationships and the way they conduct their life and instead of seeing it as well we're doing it the toughest we're doing it the hardest at the moment having a bit more of a sense of sort of compassion for the you know our entire sort of population that we're all actually having a really tough time and building a more resilient community all together rather than just focusing on sort of one industry yes no one wins if you start an exhaustion competition do they no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so any last thoughts before we wrap up prudence give us an optimistic finish on mood disorders for the audience yeah, well, we've heard some great suggestions and I think, you know, get 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 out, get some exercise and get your meditation apps, the free ones on your phone. There you go. That's going to help. Yes, and the, and the S in Geordie's Your Best Self for me would stand for substance because one of the huge things that affects people's mood and management of mood disorder is their substance use. And just go cautiously with that alcohol and other substance. Uh, it's indeed time to wrap up here on 3 Triple R. It's just time to say thank you to our phone-in guests. We had Jan, oh, Jana Favero from the ASRC, and that number again um, is one three hundred six nine two seven seven two. 692 772 Donate to the ASRC. Melbourne GP Geordie Rockman. Also a huge thanks to my studio companions, Prudence Deer and Miss Diagnosis, and always indebted to Panel Beta for looking after us on the other side of the desk there. I've been Dr Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook. You can listen to us anytime with Triple R On Demand. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.